0: Greetings, my name is Stan Prager from the REGARP book blog, www.regarp.com. Today's podcast features my review of Wrestling With His Angel, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, 1849-1856, and All the Powers of the Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 3, 1856-1860, by Sidney Blumenthal. On November 6, 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected the 16th President of the United States, although his name did not appear on the ballot in 10 southern states. Just about six weeks later, South Carolina seceded. This information is communicated in only the final few of the more than 600 pages contained in All the Powers of the Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 3, 1856-1860, the ambitious third installment in Sidney Blumenthal's projected five-volume series. But this book, just as the similarly thick ones that preceded it, is burdened neither by unnecessary paragraphs nor even a single gratuitous sentence. Still, most noteworthy, Abraham Lincoln, the ostensible subject, is conspicuous in his absence in vast portions of this intricately detailed and extremely well-written narrative that goes well beyond the boundaries of ordinary biography to deliver a much-needed re-evaluation of the tumultuous age that he sprang from, in order to account for how it was that this unlikely figure came to dominate it. The surprising result is that through this unique approach, the reader will come to know and appreciate the nuance and complexity that was the man in his times like never before. When I was in school, in the standard textbooks, Lincoln seems to come out of nowhere. A homespun prairie lawyer who served a single unremarkable term in the House of Representatives, he is thrust into national prominence when he debates Stephen A. Douglas in his ultimately unsuccessful campaign for the U.S. Senate then somehow rebounds just two years later by skipping past Congress and into the White House Douglas, once one of the most well known and consequential figures of his day, slips into historical obscurity. Meanwhile, long simmering sectional disputes between white men on both sides roar to life with Lincoln's election, sparking secession by a South convinced that their constitutional rights and privileges are under assault. Slavery looms just vaguely on the periphery. Civil war ensues, an outgunned Confederacy falls, Lincoln is assassinated, slavery is abolished, national reconciliation follows, and African Americans are even more thoroughly erased from history than Stephen Douglas. Of course, the historiography has come a long way since then. While fringe laws cause adherents still speak of states' rights, the scholarly consensus has unequivocally established human chattel slavery as the central cause for the conflict as well as resurrected the essential role of African Americans who comprised the full 10% of the Union Army in putting down the rebellion. In recent decades, this has motivated historians to re-examine the pre-war and post-war years through a more polished lens. That has enabled a more thorough exploration of the antebellum period that had been too long cluttered with grievances of far less significance such as the frictions in rural versus urban agriculture versus industry and tariffs versus free trade such elements may indeed have exacerbated tensions but without slavery there could have been no civil war and yet and yet with all the literature that has resulted from this more recent scholarship much of it certainly superlative, students of the era cannot help but detect the shadows of missing bits and pieces, like the dark matter in the universe we know exists but struggle to identify. This is at least partially due to timelines that fail to properly chart root causes that far precede traditional antebellum chronologies that sometimes look back no further than the Mexican War, which at the same time serves as a bold underscore to the lack of agreement or even a consistent start date for the antebellum. Not surprisingly, perhaps, this murkiness has also crept into the realm of Lincoln studies, to the disfavor of genres that should be complementary rather than competing. In fact, the trajectory of Lincoln's life and the antebellum are inextricably conjoined, a reality that Sidney Blumenthal brilliantly captures with a revolutionary tactic that chronicles these as a single intertwined narrative that begins with The Self-Made Man, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 1, 1809-1849 which I reviewed elsewhere. It is evident that at Lincoln's birth, the slave South already effectively controlled the government, not only by way of a string of chief executives who also happened to be Virginia plantation dynasts, but, of even greater consequence, outsized representation obtained via the Constitution's Three-Fifths Clause. But even then, there were signs that the slave power, Pregnant with an exaggerated sense of their own self-importance, a conviction of moral superiority, as well as a ruthless will to dominate, possessed an unquenchable appetite to enlarge their extraordinary political power to steer the ship of state, frequently enabled by the northern men of southern sympathies then disparaged as doe-faces. Lincoln was 11 at the time of the Missouri Compromise, 23 during the nullification crisis so closely identified with John C. Calhoun. Twenty-seven, when the first elements of the gag rule in the House so ardently opposed by John Quincy Adams were instituted. Thirty-seven, at the start of both the Mexican War and his sole term as an Illinois congressman, where he questioned the legitimacy of that conflict. That same year, Stephen A. Douglas, also of Illinois, was elected U.S. Senator. Through it all, the author proves as adept as historian of the United States as he is biographer of Lincoln, who sometimes goes missing for a chapter or more only summoned when the account calls for him to make an appearance. Some critics have voiced their frustration at Lincoln's own absence for extended portions, in what is, after all, his own biography. But they seem to be missing the point. As Blumenthal demonstrates in this and subsequent volumes, it is not only impossible to study Lincoln without surveying the age that he walked the earth, but it turns out that it is equally impossible to analyze the causes of the Civil War, absent an analysis of Lincoln, because he was such a critical figure along the way. Wrestling With His Angel, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, 1849-1856, to 1856, picks up where a self-made man leaves off, and that in turn is followed by all the powers of the earth. All form a single unbroken narrative of politics and power, something that happens to fit with my growing affinity for political biography, as distinguished by David O. Stewart's George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, John Meacham's Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, A Political Life, by Robert Dalek. Blumenthal, of course, takes this not only to a whole new level, but to an entirely new dimension. For more recent times, the best of the best in this genre appears in the works by historian Rick Perlstein, author of Nixonland and Reaganland, who also happens to be the guy who recommended Blumenthal to me. In the pages of Pearlstein's Reaganland, Jimmy Carter occupies center stage far more so than Ronald Reagan, since without Carter's failed presidency, there never could have been a President Reagan. Similarly, Blumenthal cedes a good deal of Lincoln's spotlight to Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln's longtime rival and the most influential doughface of his time. Many have dubbed John C. Calhoun the true instigator in the process that led to civil war a decade after his death and while their reputation may not be undeserved, it might be overstated. Calhoun, a southerner who celebrated slavery, championed nullification, and normalized notions of secession, could indeed be credited with paving the road to disunion. But, as Blumenthal skillfully reveals, maniacally gripping the reins of the wagon that in a confluence of unintended consequences was to hurtle towards both secession and war was the undersized, racist, alcoholic, bombastic, narcissistic, ambitious, pro-slavery but pro-union northerner Stephen A. Douglas, the so-called little giant. Like Calhoun, Douglas was self-serving and opportunistic, with a talent for constructing an ideological framework for issues that suited his purposes. But unlike Calhoun, while he often served their interests, Douglas was a northern man never accepted nor entirely trusted by the Southern elite that he toadied to in his cyclical unrequited hopes they would back his presidential ambitions such support never materialized. It may not have been clear at the time, and the history books tend to overlook it, but Blumenthal demonstrates that it was the rivalry between Douglas and Lincoln that truly defined the struggles and outcomes of the age. It was Douglas who, undeterred by the failed efforts of Henry Clay, shepherded through the Compromise of 1850, which included the Fugitive Slave Act that was such an anathema to the North. More significantly, the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act that repealed the Missouri Compromise was Douglass' brainchild, and Douglas was to continue to champion his doctrine of popular sovereignty even after Tawney's ruling in Dred Scott invalidated it. It was Douglass' fantasy that he alone could unite the states of North and South, even as the process of fragmentation was well underway, a course he himself surely, if inadvertently, set in motion. Douglas tried to be everyone's man, and in the end he was to be no one's. Throughout all of this, over many years, Blumenthal argues, Lincoln, out of elective office but hardly a bystander, followed Douglas. Lincoln's election brought secession, but if a sole agent was to be named for fashioning the circumstances that ignited the Civil War, that discredit would surely go to Douglas, not Lincoln. These two volumes combined well exceed a thousand pages not including copious notes and back matter, so no review can appropriately capture it all, except to say that collectively it represents a magnificent achievement that succeeds in treating the reader to what the living Lincoln was like while recreating the era that defined him. Indeed, including his first book, I have thus far read nearly 1,600 pages of Blumenthal's Lincoln, and my attention has never wavered. Only Robert Caro, with his Shakespearean multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, has managed to keep my interest as long as Blumenthal. And I can't wait for the next two in the series to hit the press. To date, more than 15,000 books have been published about Abraham Lincoln, so there are many to choose from. Still, these from Blumenthal are absolutely required reading. Thank you for joining me for today's podcast. I encourage you to share it in your network. Many more reviews on an eclectic array of fiction and nonfiction books are available at regarp.com and regarpbookblogpod.com. Have a great day.